It's been a long day, at least <laughs> for me personally. But I will say, after yesterday, it is just glad that Fast 9 is still coming out this year. <laughs> I was so happy when I watched that trailer because... Of the second trailer that just came out? Yeah, because it's... I mean, the first trailer still is in the back of my head because it just has a funny edit in that and, like, the music that's picked and everything. And it was that moment of, like, well, I don't necessarily know if it's still going to open this year because COVID's still a thing and it's going to still be a thing in the summer. So what exactly are they going to do? Right. And the answer is, ah, oh, we're just going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay. I mean, I think the the Universal Theater deal happens this year where it's like, I think 27 days after its first weekend, it'll be on VOD. Mm. Or at least that doesn't start until 2022. I don't know yet. But it is a Universal film. It could apply. And in all honesty, I think my favorite part about that new trailer is that it didn't really hide anything like i don't necessarily know i don't think it necessarily gave away the whole movie but it kind of showed us everything that the movie's gonna be like they're they're probably they may or may not go to space yeah well they they got a rocket car they got a rocket car (laughs) and it's fucking ludicrous and tyrese gibson yep just about to go up and break the atmosphere i feel like my my big my feeling after watching that new trailer is just like this is this is the movie where this franchise fully becomes live action anime. Yeah, no, pretty <laughs> live much live action American anime. No, for sure. It's it's. I mean, you have the the secret older brother that isn't really secret <laughs> right. because he didn't really exist until this film. Right, right. You have the recurring villain. You have like bad guys becoming friends again with Helen Mirren showing up in this film. Oh, yeah. Is is it? Yeah, it's Shaw. It's Shaw's mom. Yeah. And for some reason, there's no Jason Statham, but we're getting <laughs> Helen Mirren, which I love. Right. Well, and it's just, uh, they've, I don't want to say, I can't say, that's. it'd be disingenuous to say that they're jumping the shark at this point, just because they've made a habit out of that every no, movie. They, so it's like, yeah, it's it's the norm now. But um, I mean, it's just, you know, you've got, you've got all these people who are allegedly ordinary human beings, just really good drivers, <laughs> but they're pulling off superhuman feats and yeah. dealing with, you know, sci-fi tech, like those magnets. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Yeah. I'm excited for yeah. the magnets. This, the best part about the term jumping the shark, especially in case of Fast and Furious, is jumping the shark in most narratives implies that it goes to a level that it wasn't previously established. <laughs> yeah. And Fast and the Furious... Doesn't really is not jumping the shark with the ninth one because literally every film after the last one is just getting wilder and yeah. wilder and it feels very much yeah. like they know. The last one to yeah. really like jump the shark was probably like four or five, I and then mean, since then it's just been consistently absurd. Yeah, I would say the tunnel under the border is probably like <laughs> the the jump the shark moment in that film. Yeah, but then in five. Five for the majority of that film is basically like a it's a it's a team up film that is silly and over the top. By the time it gets to the vault, you've already seen Vin Diesel and The Rock throw each other into multiple walls, right? And like take hits like they're monsters. It's just <laughs> it's truly wonderful, and I'm super curious as to what nine or ten is supposed to be. <laughs> There's a funny thing that came out. And I, I don't mean it's it, – it's funny because uh, Vin Diesel, I think, said in, like, an interview that, like, one time John Cena walked in and he felt like for a moment that Paul Walker sent him or something like that. What? And I don't know if that's, like, in terms of casting or in terms of, like, it felt like something – Like his like, presence like was Paul's there? Pre- like, Paul would have – like, he would have liked Cena being in the series. <laughs> and I just think that's funny because it just – People are having spiritual experiences on, on the Fast set of Fast Furious, Nine, yeah. yeah. Which is, I mean, Paul Walker's death is awful. And, sure, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, it's hard not to read that and go, "Wait, what?" I don't know if I could pe- <laughs> speak for a dead man, but I feel like that's that's just. I mean, that's just something I don't know how to respond to, other than <laughs> laugh kind of uncomfortably because it's like, yeah. "Oh, okay." <laughs> I guess that is sure. Why not? Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, is there anything else? Should we just jump right into it, or should we... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think it was appropriate to open this episode, which is about anime, with a conversation about American live-action anime in the form of Fast and Furious. Well, let's just go right into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And in case you don't know, Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy is we take a trio of films, and we talk about the good, and the bad, and the odd surrounding them. And today, we are going, like Andy said, right into anime. From Snyder to Godzilla, and now we're at anime. (laughs) Yeah, we've been tiptoeing around anime in the form of Snyder and Godzilla. We are heading to Japan. (laughs) Logan and Andy, go to Japan. I would love that. (laughs) But yeah, we are going to Japan for this episode because we are handling... A trio of films in Studio Ghibli's filmography. And we're also going to preface this right now, because Andy found out about this before we uh, filmed, but I thought it was really funny. When the, when the term Ghibli was initially established in the production company, they got it from the Italian word Ghibli. Right. But they pronounce it Ghibli. <laughs> well, it was just, I think it was Miyazaki just saw it on a plane. Yes. Like in Italy me. or flying to Italy or something. He just saw the word and he was like, oh, I like that word. But then, and then he gonna, named his yeah. studio that and mispronounced it. Yeah, that's like looking at like, I like the word Apple, but I'm going to say it Apple. Yeah. We're Studio Apple. <laughs> yeah, Studio Apple. But no, we are not going to be talking about Hayao Miyazaki's films. Because there's too many of those, and we don't know how to make that to a trilogy <laughs> yet. We are now going to be talking about the films of his son, Goro Miyazaki. Because his son has a very interesting relationship with his father, the studio, and just overall, every single one of his films are very weird for different reasons. And we thought it would be fun yeah. to talk about those films, which are 2006's Tale from the Earth Sea. 2011's From Up on Poppy Hill, and 2020's Earwig and the Witch, which is currently on HBO Max. Yeah, perfectly for us. He's only directed three movies, yeah, so it's honestly. a natural fit. And I think before we get into Tales from the Earth Sea, the most, I mean, because to be honest, I think his backstory is probably one of the most interesting things about him as a director, is the fact that, like, Goro did not want to become a director. <laughs> he initially... What's interesting is the fact that like his relationship with Hayao was very, I don't know, I don't, I can't say because I don't know them personally, but it seems like from most accounts, it was complicated because Hayao was kind of an absent father at times because he was such an artistic, like yeah, a was professional, lost in the yeah. work and stuff. He would nearly like he would just strain himself to the point of almost collapse. I would assume in terms of finishing these beautiful films. Mm-hmm. And that probably didn't give him a lot of time to be a dad. So, like, when Goro and his brother were growing up, if I, they basically wanted to do animation to a degree, but Goro at a certain point was like, I am never, ever going to live up to my father's legacy, and I'm always going to be overshadowed by that, so I'm not going to do that. So instead, he decided to become a landscape architecture <laughs> major, started to do architecture, and... What got him into Ghibli's film is very fascinating. He was the head designer for the Ghibli Museum Mm -hmm. in Japan, which I believe production started in 98. And by the time it came out, or by the time it was finished, a producer from Ghibli, who was a longtime friend, I believe, of Hayao's, basically saw the work, the effort that he put into the Ghibli Museum, as well as, at a certain point, I think, for Tales from the Earthsea, Goro initially was, like, only a consultant. Mm. And then he was like, hey, I saw that you've been doing storyboards. It seems like you know your father's style and you have talent. Why don't you direct Tales from the Earthsea? But Daddy said no. That's the thing, is Goro (laughs) initially was like, no, I don't really want to do that. But when he decided, oh, yeah, sure, why not? Hayo was vehemently against it, saying he wasn't ready. So it led to Tales from the Earthsea's development being Hayo and Goro didn't talk to one another (laughs) while they did this film. And apparently it was very intense production-wise. Hayo wrote it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think Hayo was actually... 
because the the books that this is based off of are written by I think Ursula L. Lee Gain or Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin or Le Guin. Yeah, Ursula K. Le Guin, and I think Hayo was able to get the rights or at least her permission in like the mid to late nineties. Where it's like, basically, she initially was like, you're into animation, and she just assumed it was Disney. <laughs> she's like, no, I don't want you to, I, no, Disney couldn't do my stuff. And then yeah. she started seeing Ghibli films, and she's like, if anyone could do my work, it would be you. So Hayo, I think, was a co-writer on the script, and also okay. planned the film. But then, Goro took it over, because I think, at the time, Hayo was extremely busy with Howl's Moving Castle. A better film, and <laughs> no, no, you know, oh, no, no, no. We'll get into that, but yeah, I mean, there's also a fascinating video that is on YouTube. You can find it where it's like a TV special where they just follow Miyazaki around, and it's around the time Hal's coming out. But Tales from the Earthsea is getting like its initial kind of reactions, and like I think critics are seeing it. Mm-hmm. And Hayo is like nervous, but he shows up. And, like, halfway through the film, he leaves the room, just smokes a cigarette in the lobby, and talks about, like, that just, I see a lot of, I see a lot of our relationship in that film, and it just makes me uncomfortable, and it's like, (laughs) well, (laughs) and again, it's like, I guess watching Tales from the Earthsea now in terms of the two lead characters, one of the main characters just abandons another character until the very end. Right, yeah, yeah, It's like, yeah. Yeah. I guess it makes sense that it would be really weird to see that. But Hayo at some point gave it its blessing, and then in 2006 it comes out. Andy, what did you think of Tales from the Earthsea? Oh, man. Um, you know, the the weird thing is it's um, on an animation level, it's oh. not really, you know, it's very in line with, yeah. with everything else. You know, there's, there's no you- shortcomings there. I will say... Like the aesthetic, the the designs and the concepts are not nearly as interesting as a lot of the other films, but the animation itself and the the way it's executed, perfectly on par. I yeah. felt like and if you, if really, you s- really brilliant even in some sequences. Yeah, if you see a still from this film, you just go, "Oh, it's Ghibli." It's and a that's Ghibli tr- movie I haven't seen. I'll it check true. it out. Don't. Absolutely, but when you watch it, it's hard not to be like this. I mean, this film definitely feels like the B team. To a degree. Yeah. And not not saying that it's bad on an animation level. It's not. It just seems like it was very clear that so many people were busy with howls or doing other things. That when it comes to this film, this film is... For a fantasy film that is introducing this world for the first time and is supposed to, like... I don't think it's trying to do sequels after this, but it's trying to get you engrossed in this world. It's pretty fucking boring just like for two hours sterile like yeah i mean you remarked after like half an hour that like we still didn't know any of the characters or why they were doing what they were doing we didn't know the plot yeah like half like 30 minutes in you're like what's the main let's like what's the main thing like (laughs) what what's the problem they have to face and then an hour in i said andy we're an hour in and you went what (laughs) what is going on and i was like i don't know why is this happening? <laughs> Why is this movie taking so long? And then, like, 90 minutes in, we get to the climax, and we're like, ooh, maybe something's really going to happen. And then, no, not really. Like, no. it just... It kind of it kind of teases out some set pieces and some action sequences that don't mm-hmm. really come. They just mm-hmm. kind of, they start, and then they stop. And, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's clearly not a movie about action, and that's okay to not have a bunch of fight sequences to tell something a little more meditative or something but there's just not enough going on to do that yeah hell the next i mean his second film has no action sequences oh it's a slice of life it's a slice of life film and it's a blast it's just it's just a fun movie but this one is like not only is this a fantasy world this is apparently a fantasy world that is based off of the third book in five yeah they just took a book from three not only did they take a book from three they also took ideas from Hayao Miyazaki's own, like, graphic, like, manga that he did that has nothing to do with Earthsea. They just took <laughs> yeah. ideas that they liked in that book well, and put and it together. Wasn't it also just um, also a blend of ideas of Goro's that he just 
I think so. He just so. wanted to tell a story and kind of liked <clears throat> Earthsea, and yeah. so he wanted to use it as inspiration. I don't know. I, I think, I don't know for certain, because I know in the later films, there there's music in both Earwig and From Up on Poppy Hill that I know Goro wrote the lyrics for. Oh. But it could be a good case that Tales from the Earthsea, the whole sequence where the, the, the one girl is singing could also just be a Goro original. <laughs> yeah. And it's just... It's just really weird to watch this film because, I, I mean, I have a bit of a history in terms of, like, this was, like, a film that I saw with a bunch of friends. And I saw it subbed initially, and at a certain point, I was watching confused, like, this is Ghibli, right? Like, why is this bad? Where's the interesting part? I was like, why is this so boring? Like, this is a world that has dragons and magic and cool, honestly, some cool set design areas mm. and, like... It's it it it's coastal to a degree and very fascinating, very Irish yeah, kind of inspiration. North, Northern England or yeah. Ireland kind of inspired fantasy world. And then and, and then you just watch the film and you're like, I don't fucking what what? Yeah, you, there's you, no you lose, there's nothing to grab onto emotionally because no yeah. nobody really has a personality. Yeah, I think they have certain roles to play in the story, but it feels also like predetermined and stiff and nobody really feels like they're trying to do anything for themselves or trying to accomplish anything i don't know it's i mean you you get like the two main characters in the film are aaron who Mm. is a prince who killed his father and kind of the only explanation we get is the darkness inside him basically took over and he can't control it he has this weird kind of habit of getting all creepy looking and gets sort of possessed and attacks people but it's like it's not really certain what provokes it or it's, it's like it's a it's like kingdom Hearts shit and i yeah. love kingdom hearts but it's like a worse but... description of it <laughs> well at least it's kingdom like... hearts goes like at length to explain to oh, you what's oh, happening my god absolutely you know, it does. to a fault probably Ab- but like yes. this is the opposite where it's like we're gonna yeah. introduce these weird kind of you mm-hmm. know bizarre story ideas and not explain it and it doesn't matter and you're just supposed to go with it i mean like the biggest i mean like one of the, the other main character is named sparrowhawk Sparrow who's yeah. who's got a great voice actor behind him timothy dalton for the dub but like He's supposed to be I, the Archmage, who which is, is apparently a, like the greatest supposed to, supposed to be like the most powerful wizard in the world. Yeah, but all he does it's is like the Sorcerer Supreme. He he like makes a bright light at one point, scares some wolves, changes breaks, his face, changes his face, breaks some chains. Yeah, and then just like he really doesn't do much. Yeah, and I think in the like only really established in the world that like magic only exists to a degree. Be it, it it depends on how much you use it, how much you take away from the world, because obviously it's a balance. Because why wouldn't it be? Right. And you magic is basically you just say what you want to happen, like break or kill or something like that. And if you have the conviction and the the prowess, I guess. Yeah. It's just like okay, all right. Why? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's some, I don't know. It's just, it's so weird how nothing this movie is. Yeah. Just very blank slate. Like there, there is definitely room to take this, uh, the, the bones of this story and fill it out with humanity and Mm -hmm. interesting, you know, character arcs and, and relationships, but it's just, it really feels bare bones. Like somebody took the outline of a story and just wrote it encyclopedia style and then decided to make a movie out of that like you can't even say that this film is trying to set up for future sequels Mm -hmm. it just this feels like a film that's been in development for a while if it has been yeah and it just like feels like it got any sort of meaning got boiled out of it or any sort of ambition to tell any sort of particular story with it got boiled it just feels like baseline story just plot and it, I mean, one of the funniest things that I think I read for this is, I mean, Ursula K. L. Le Guin, if hopefully that's the right way to say it, she, who's the author of the Earthsea novels, she is like, she saw the film and she's like, well, it's nothing like my books, but <laughs> hey, at least it looks good. I had a fun time. Yeah. And it's like, okay, cool. I'm glad at least she enjoyed it. And I mean, I mean, critically, it just was like, I think it had a genuinely positive outlook initially, but now it's mainly... 
negative just over time because it's like it just doesn't meet the standards of other Ghibli films. Yeah. Like it looks like a standard Ghibli film, but then you watch it and the story just has like it's not trying to do a lot. Like the thing that's so crazy too is like when I think of like Ghibli to me, I mean, um, for a lot of people it's usually Spirited Away or Mononoke or Howl's Movie Castle, but all three of those films what I think have in common is a lot all three of those films like have like almost a 2-hour runtime and they are trying to do so much. They're trying to do what should be could be enough for 3 hours, maybe even two films depending yeah. on what they're dealing with. And yet they know what to cut, they know what to touch on and they still even with all the stuff they're doing it's still emotionally captivating, which Tales from the Earth Sea doesn't do enough. Mm-hmm. Or even, I thought only to a degree, not even really the bare minimum to be captivating to the point where, like, I'm honestly just done talking about the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm totally cool with moving on. It's just, yeah, yeah it's, I, I don't think, I, I'm still a ways off from, I mean, a, a long ways off from completing, like, the Ghibli filmography or even Miyazaki's filmography, but yeah. it's far and away the the just driest in terms of personality yeah ghibli film i've seen um i don't know that i would call it my least favorite given the third entry in this trilogy but oh, i can't okay we're but at the... um it is very dry and I, I just there's not really any takeaway aside from, aside from the animation and like a couple kind of isolated cool yeah. moments it's, it, it's i guess not... one highlight would be if you're watching the dub willem defoe's kind of weird whispery creepy performance as the villain yeah but even then it's like if you didn't tell someone that was willem dafoe you really couldn't tell yeah like timothy dalton is like the most notable but even then it's like the characters are so bare bones to a degree that the dub rarely does anything like the 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 dub actor for aaron has the most to do (laughs) and even then there's moments where like you're just I don't He's know just, why you're acting so crazy. Like I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. So it doesn't mean anything to me. But yeah, I mean, Tales from the Earth. It was. It, I wanted to see if I would like more. I mean, if I would like something else after seeing it years later. But yeah. no, it's not that good. It's just very forgettable. But thank God that from up on Poppy Hill and from 2011 is miles better. It's oh, yeah. so much more interesting, and not only is it much more interesting. It is dealing with a subject that is not only taboo, but it also rides the line so well that you can't believe (laughs) you are rooting for something that, honestly, no one should really be rooting for, but it's great. We we I mean we gotta just talk about the we're premise. Gonna, yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we have yeah, to. So yeah, so in case you didn't see it in time for the podcast or you just you're curious altogether. From Up on Poppy Hill takes place in 1963 in Japan. You know, it's on the it's on the brink on the brink of like getting the Tokyo Olympics. You know, Japan is in a different time time and space in terms of like just as a country. Yeah. And the film is basically a coming of age romance not story between two characters, which I cannot remember the girl's name. I do remember the boy's name um. is Shun. Because it ends like with an N, but like, what's the girl's name? Uh, is Shun it... and Umi. Umi. Umi and Shun. It's basically two high schoolers in Japan who basically fall in love, and then a a a plot twist that <laughs> neither of them expected completely changes their relationship, and it's watching that relationship grow as well as watching them grow and shift with the changing times in Japan. And when we're talking about the plot twist, we're going right into it. Yeah, um, we, we, the, can't, yeah we can't. We can't dance not. around it. Yeah, the plot twist is basically at a certain point in the film, Shun discovers that they're both they're both like bro- they're brother and sister. They have the same father. Yeah, both both of them know that their their dads died in the war. Yeah, what he, they were he was a sailor yeah. and he went off to war and never came back <laughs> and. They kind of, or Shun kind of realizes after doing some research that, yeah, oh, he, wait a minute, he, wait a minute, this is the same yeah. guy. Basically, Umi shows Shun a picture of her father who fought in World War II and in the Korean War, and Shun has the same exact picture and is told by his foster parents that that is his real father. So they basically, he goes, I mean, he basically is like, I love you, but we're brother and sister, this can't be a thing. Yeah. And it... 
I mean, it completely rocks Umi as a character, but what's so interesting, too, is, like, it's not just about, like, you know, Umi is only about, like, Shun, or Shun is only about Umi. It's very much like right. they have their own lives. Their lives are flesh, fresh, fleshed out in terms well, yeah, of, they, like, they, There's this kind of, I guess, the backdrop of it all is that they're they're trying to save the Latin Quarter, which is this kind of clubhouse on the yeah. campus of their high school that's very old and run down, but the the club members who use it love it mm-hmm. and have really, you know, uh, made their homes in it at school okay. and are trying not to... It's it's getting... Or they the school wants to tear it down. They're mm-hmm. fighting against that, so it's kind of a little school po- politics thing, um, and they're both Umi and Shun are invested in that. And that's honestly just as interesting and fun and fascinating as the incest romance plot. Um, There's no other way to put it. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I, but I it's got, so funny to say out loud because yeah. it's... Well, the weirdest part to me was like, I mean, I turned to you, I think, at one point late in the movie as we're kind of waiting to see how it turns out. And I was like, I have never rooted this hard for incest to happen. Like, I just... You, you want it because they're, they're great and they so clearly care about each other, mm-hmm. and it's like they did. They they were just so blindsided by this because yeah. they're they're already. I don't know that they're officially dating, but they're clearly hanging out all the time and invested mm-hmm. in each other. And, yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, for we're... for at least a week, maybe yeah. months before they find out. Yeah. That that their brother they're, and sister. They're, and they're not really there. Which I also love too is I mean. One of the things that I really think is fascinating about the film is it feels, if it's not authentic, I haven't really heard anything about it being against the film, but the film just feels very authentic for the time period it's trying to do. Yeah. Where with Shun and Umi, they never kiss, they never really hold hands either, but it's very clear that they're the more that they talk to one another, how they blush with one another, yeah, the way it's they very look at clear. Each other. The way they look at each other, it's very clear they're into one another and their relationship slash possible romance is growing until that plot hole that plot hole that plot twist happens (laughs) but even then when the plot twist happens you can see that both of them are still struggling because it's like i died why does this have to happen to me yeah yeah they both know that they can't continue Uh it but that it it doesn't stop their feelings for each other so they kind of try to be friends but that's mm-hmm. not really because then they're kind of shun's giving her the cold shoulder because he doesn't know how to process his feelings yeah like and... as, a, as a classic teenage boy he just hopes she goes away but <laughs> yeah. doesn't and then but at then one they're point, able to kind of yeah make a friendship through it yeah and... no yeah another i mean you find out at the very end of the film <laughs> that uh they aren't related thank god they can be together <laughs> we, were, we were great. both just like ah, yeah. yeah it's it's also what's so crazy too is like you it's you are touching you are you are writing a fine line where it's like yeah. it is I cannot think of an easy way to sell a normal person on the idea of God I know these two are related but I kind of want them to get together and then you watch this film and you go God this is so weird I never thought you could do this but like it, it's I mean in my mind like what I I think of. I don't know if you've seen this. It, it, it has a point to it. But do you remember that Black Mirror episode with Anthony Mackie yeah, in it? Yeah, yeah. Where he's like, just fucking just kiss, kiss me, me man. Yeah. There's a point in the movie where I'm like, listen, just just kiss each other once. Get it out of the way yeah, and then just, move on. Just, yeah. just, you don't you have to do linger. You, you, just you don't pretend have to you don't know yeah. for the next 30 yeah. seconds. And then when it's... Take it, the opportunity and then, okay, then then your brother and sister. Yeah. Okay. And then cool. the plot twist happens where it's like, oh, no, they're not related. And you go, oh... Yeah. Now they can kiss as much as they yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. And then you don't see them kiss. Yeah, but there's I a think... great moment where, like, at the very end, which I will say probably one of the only issues I have with the film is it ends abruptly. Yeah. <laughs> but when they're uh, on on like on the sea and they're heading back to their homes, there's a moment where Shun is, like, next to Umi and, like, Shun's foster dad, like, basically, like, I, I nudges him to, like, get next to her. <laughs> and he just, like, he just, like, gets embarrassed and blushes and it's yeah. like oh that's just so sweet like yeah it's, it's i think so it, good it was really important to the kind of the rootability of their relationship to like not really have any physicality yeah. to their relationship because I, th- I think as soon as you do that there's this immediate kind of instinct to like be repulsed yeah when you know that they're brothers it's like oh oh they did that it's kind of like you know in you know uh, luke and leia 
kiss and then yeah. later it's revealed that they're brother and sister it's mm-hmm. like oh why did why did we do that yeah. why was that a thing well i think i mean it could be i i mean in terms of star wars that was it no was it never was totally always... it was never not planned and yeah the, yeah and maybe I, there's total reasons why yeah. behind the scenes but in terms of this i think it was just so smart to have it yeah it, it makes it that much more wholesome and that much more rootable to them. Mm-hmm. It's purely, you know, in the eyes and the way they talk to each other. Yeah. And it's just, I really like this person and I really, I really get along with them. And it just, you, your heart just kind of breaks for them that yeah. when they're like, ah, oh, we can't do this, but we both really want to. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a great moment two thirds in where Umi just outright says like, listen, I'm always going to love you. That's never going to change you don't have to say anything. I I know we can't be together. I just want to let you know that you are important to me. And I think a part of me thinks like my father put you in put you in my put you in my life as almost like a surrogate, yeah. like just as a surrogate person in that regard. Because it's like she also has one of the weirdest like dreams where she dreams about <laughs> her father coming home, and it's with the and he has the voice of Shun, yeah. which is. Which in the, in the dub is Anton Yelchin, the late Anton Yelchin, who uh, is fantastic. Great in performance, this. and yeah, 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 that was that was so cool to see. Because at first I didn't realize it, and you pointed it out, but yeah, it is definitely him just kind of putting on a slighter, yeah. slightly deeper affectation to his voice when yeah. he's playing the dad. But what's great too is um, there's another flashback that happens later in the film where you actually get to see Umi's dad. Mm-mm. And it's not Anton. So it's like in that dream, it's just Umi having such a crisis right. of love and of just life, thinking about where Weird she wants to go. Issues. Yeah, and just dad issues in general. Because it's like, my dad's dead. Like, did he cheat on my mom before he went to the Korean War and died? Or like, mm-hmm. what happened there? And well, thankfully, she didn't yeah. know him. So it like makes yeah. sense that like if she finds out that Shun is her brother, that she would just kind of apply his voice or certain aspects of his yeah. personality onto her imagined father. It also doesn't help that like it's very clear that they can't tell anybody cuz oh, yeah. they're it's a small enough tight knit community that it's 1960s yeah, yeah that kind of community. shit would spread especially yeah. if you're a teenager and you tell your friends. Yeah, and then you'd probably like your parents or the school would separate you and you'd never see each other yeah it's it's one of those weird things where it's like i have so many just things i have to deal with right now that i'm just gonna worry about the latin quarter (laughs) yeah yeah which and the greatest part about that is that like that's not it's you know it it doesn't it doesn't uh let any slack Mm -hmm. happen you know it's just as fun when they're dealing with the latin quarter stuff and trying to save the clubhouse and they're I mean, there's a great, like, cleaning montage where yeah, they're if you told, fixing the whole place up. If you would have told awesome. me that a bunch of teenagers cleaning a clubhouse would be a thousand <laughs> times more captivating than a fantasy Ghibli film. Yeah. It's like, you would have, I would have been like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But, like, yeah, from up on Poppy Hill, I mean, there's even, like, you have Ron Howard as, like, a small role in the film, but he <laughs> perfectly fits the character, and it's yeah. wonderful. He's like yeah. basically a bouncer of the clubhouse, yeah. kind of. Jamie Lee Curtis is great for the small role she has. Mm. Bo Bridges is really good in the small role he has. It's just a film that overall has very little issue. It's just very it's just lovable a, all the way through. Oh my all god! Around yeah. All the characters. It's it's, it's it's an absolute blast. It's very much like if if anything, and I honestly think with Earwig, we'll we'll touch on this as well to a degree, but like. It seems like from up on Pompey Hill, Goro probably fits better with slice of life, historical, like romanticized yeah. historical films than, you know, fantasy films where the whole world has to be built out. Yeah. And because it, it just feels so easy. And if and Goro even writes the songs that are in this film and the songs are just very delightful and yeah. sweet. Yeah, it they work incredibly that, well. It has that kind of effortlessness of storytelling and existing Mm -hmm. in this world that you see in a lot of his father's movies where it's just like this feels so natural all these characters being here the way they interact with each other it's just it's like it was all there just waiting for you and you just walked into this world and now you're living in it it's it's yeah it's perfectly like all of the kind of 
the great storytelling in other Ghibli films. And it's just yeah. kind of shocking that this movie's bookended by two incredibly sterile movies. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating yeah. that it's like this is a film that if it just it blends in with the quality of I would say mid tier Ghibli films. Mm. This is a really good film and if not great at times, but I don't think it gets to the point of Spirit Away or Howls or Mononoke. But I would watch this several times and have a good time, especially like the dub is just good. It's like one of those times where it's like I was kind of curious because for Ghibli films at a certain point post Spirit Away, Disney handled the dubs. And I think this is one of the first films to not have Disney do the dub. It was G-Kids? It might have been G-Kids. This Mm -hmm. might be the initial G-Kids film because I'm pretty sure Walt Disney did Arietti, which was I think either – it might actually it might have been Disney, but it's like this dub just doesn't have a bunch of huge names. I think Yelchin, Curtis, and Bridges are probably the biggest names, and yeah. they're not even like they're not triple A actors. They're trying to get in the yeah. film, but they all just fit their roles well. It's just a delightful film, and the fact that for a good chunk of the film, you're kind of like. I don't want them to go too far, but, like, I kind of want them to kiss. I want incest. And it's, like, the fact that you're, like, I kind I, do I really, do I, <laughs> I really, kinda want oh, I don't, what, how does this film doing this so well? Yeah, it's just the handling of such a kind of generally repulsive topic and. It, and it's so a, natural. Ta- understandably taboo. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's handled with such care and yeah. love and, like. A worse film understanding would... of why yeah. it is taboo, mm-hmm. but also an understanding of like why that really sucks for these characters. Yeah, a worse film would have tried to do a Romeo and Juliet Juliet esque plot where yeah, it's like yeah. we're gonna be together regardless, no one's gonna stop us. But no, they're both growing a growing young adults, and they both know that not only do they have enough shit on their plate. But they also know, like, realistically, this can't be a thing. Yeah. At some point, something's going, something's going to, someone's going to find out. And also, genetically, it's probably going to, it's going to be an issue if they even try to start a family. <laughs> so it's like, they're just like, overall, like, listen, you will always be an important part of my life, but we just can't be together. Thank God that they're just not really brother and sister, <laughs> which we haven't established yet. They find out that they're not brother and sister because plot twist the picture that shun has it's the dad his dad is in that picture but it's not umi's dad it's It's, umi's dad's best friend that he went to world war ii with basically it was it was his dad's best friend died and yeah his dad's best friend died i believe or no her her dad's friend died and he took the kid he left a kid behind and so umi's dad adopted the kid Mm -hmm. and then um, Shun's parents lost, like, had a miscarriage or lost the baby, lost their baby. Yeah, and Shun's and foster so, parents. So yeah. Umi's father brought his newly adopted baby to them yeah. and basically gave it to them as their own child, mm-hmm. but didn't, I guess, didn't tell them that he had adopted it. So they just assumed it was his kid. Yeah, it's basically Shun goes, Oh, your dad's on the right side of the picture. That's also my dad. And later <laughs> it's like, No, Shun, just kidding. Your dad's the middle guy in the picture. Yeah. I was like, Oh, cool. Now I can, like, you know, date Umi and not be weird about it. Right. Thanks, plot. And it's like, Well, it's, the... it's handled so well. Yeah. It's just, you can't, it's hard to describe just how sweet and genuine and hilariously well executed this film is like yeah. again being book book ended by such weird films that just <laughs> are not good but yeah that's from up on poppy hill i'm glad we got the good one i'm glad we got to have a good one in between this because now it's time to talk about the the earwig in the room yeah <laughs> we're gonna have to talk about so again this movie is more interesting talking about the fact that like in between from Up on Poppy Hill and from Eric and the Witch, Goro Miyazaki actually directed a television series, Ghibli's first known television series called, I believe, Ronya the Robber's Daughter, which is like a 26-episode anime that was not only Ghibli's first television series, it was Ghibli's first CG animation oh, yeah, they've it's like ever done. Cell-shaded yeah. animation. And it's one of those things where it's like it I've watched some clips of it. 
it is a bit jarring at first, but apparently a lot of people who watch the show enjoy it and actually say the only real issues are in just pacing and story elements. But once that came out a few years later, they started planning on doing a a adaptation of the novel of actually I think it's just a children's book, Earwig and the Witch, mm-hmm. which I believe is a British uh, children's book. And again, Hayo starts planning on it. I think they start developing it, and then Goro was like, "Why don't we try to do CG 3D?" Yeah. And he's like, "And Goro is the only one of the kind of higher ups per se in Ghibli who has any experience with that, so he helms the project, he directs it, and he there's even plans to show Earwig at cons. There's even plans to show it in other festivals." Yeah. And then COVID happens, and they finish the film. They even have a dub prepped for 2021, but it doesn't come out in theaters. The film is a television special, I believe, <laughs> on NHK. Yeah, in Japan. Yeah, in yeah. Japan. And then a few months later, there's a dub, and it's released on HBO Max as part of their, their Ghibli hub, which yeah. they have. And... This is going to be interesting because I think you've already hinted at that this is you like this least yeah. out of the three of them. Yeah, we we actually unlike the previous two films, we mm-hmm. did not watch this movie together. Um, yes, we watched this on our own, and so we're kind of jumping in cold turkey to each other's yeah. reactions. Because I think our experiences. I mean, I watched this. All the lights were off. It's like late at night, and I'm like. I just want to get this out of the way. Yeah. And I just sit down and I watch it. And I, I mean, to the films, to do a, crit, a critique of the film, I con- I did pause it almost every 20 minutes being like, how long <laughs> am I in this? I don't understand. Like, I was like, okay, all right. I'm, I'm curious as to where this is going. And you just watched it today. I watched it today. Actually, it was a slow day at work. I work from home right now. And so I popped it on while I was was working. Which are two vastly different ways to watch this movie. (laughs) I was, was, surprisingly enough, pretty engaged the whole... I I don't know. I don't know how to say it. I was focused the whole time. I was not distracted while I was watching it. Um but it it was just incredibly this one i think kind of unlike uh tales from earthsea actually has a lot of interesting story elements at play um yes unfortunately i think all of the characters are way too shallow to grab onto and uh also kind of annoying i found every single character annoying Okay, that's understandable. The voices, the way they talked, the personality of them. mm -hmm. We're going to get into the dub because I think the dub is one of the biggest issues with this film. Yeah. But I will say, I I guess I have to disagree with you to a a good part (laughs) of the point. I enjoyed this more than Tails, but I don't think I enjoyed it enough that it gets like a better rating than Tails. Yeah. Like I dislike both of these films equally, but I think what Earwig surprised me the most was like, I was more engaged like you were, but also at the same time I was like, I just kind of enjoy how simplistic this is. Yeah. I was interested in just the, the quick and easiness of the premise. Just, you know, I mean, basically it's this orphan gets kind of fostered by, yeah. to uh, a witch and a sorcerer just kind of this this magical duo who live mm-hmm. together and they're kind of nefarious and one's a demon the other's a witch yeah and they kind of she's basically a servant it's not a great life for her i mean uh-huh. she's she's she i guess lives well she has you know a nice house and a nice bedroom but she's just put to task day in and day out um just gets yelled at called a stupid kid all the time um, and is basically just cleaning up the messes of these these magic users who are constantly creating potions and spells and yeah. Um, it's so a, it's basically her. It's a, a story of defiance. She's kind of trying to break out and like escape mm-hmm. and figure out how to do magic on her own yeah, without she's, them. She's very. It's yeah. An orphan gets adopted by a witch and wants to be a witch herself. Yeah, and so that's, it, that's the plot. Yeah, so it it doesn't really have the problem of tales from Ursi where you're like waiting the entire time to figure out what it's about. Yeah, uh, it's very to the point and it's very um, breezy and digestible, and I appreciated that about it. 
I, yeah, I just never felt anything the entire it's, time. It's narrative. I was never amused. I was never, like, it has, yeah, distressed. Or... Yeah, it has a very narrow viewpoint plot-wise, and it, I think that goes to its benefit yeah. compared to Earthsea, where it's like, obviously there's more in Earthsea that we're just not getting because either it was cut right. or they didn't want to explain it. Well, as with Earwig, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, that's the thing, too, is I was watching this. It was also like, oh, yeah, this is a TV special in Japan. Like, this does, this just, this feels, like, in all honesty, like, if Cartoon Network were, for some reason, to get this <laughs> film and have, like, a two-hour block for it, and I was, like, maybe 10 or 11, I probably would have enjoyed it and maybe, you know, probably forgotten about it, but I would have been like, oh, wow, you yeah. know, cool. It, like, it fits... It fits the it fits TV, it fits the length. It just like the film just ends at a certain point. Yeah, almost kind of feeling like is this supposed to lead to a show? I guess it doesn't matter, <laughs> yeah. but like okay. Yeah, but it's, um, it's uh, and it yeah, it just feels the entire time very the the story to me feels very I don't know diluted. Not diluted, but diluted, oh, yeah. like in water. Um, like there's there's room for emotional growth here and, and serious emotional beats. I mean, the whole time she's kind of longing for the mother she never knew. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, and that's she kind of thing. gets hints about, okay, do, do these people who fostered me know my mother? Because she kind of finds out that they used to be in this band and that there's this mysterious third lady in the band and she's oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah. she's kind of drawn to her. But it, it's just done so, I don't know, robotically for me where it's just like, mm -hmm. it just feels so step by step. Okay, we're doing this scene and then we're doing this scene and I've seen every single moment in this movie done in a more interesting way in another movie. Yeah. It's like Matilda Light kind of. Yeah, no, um, it is. No, that's a good way to put it. It's, it's like a watered down... Matilda. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like it's it's very silly and kooky and it's it has it has charm to it. It's just again, it 3D is not Ghibli's forte. Yeah, well. And so that's another thing too is I mean, I think the two biggest things, I think to me the biggest issue is the dub. The animation absolutely I has think issues. The animation but, is awful. But yeah. the thing though too is like I mean, there are moments in the animation where it's like, God, I mean, they could do 3D if they actually, you know, developed this more. Yeah. The, but this very much feels kind of half-baked in a lot of scenes. Yeah, there's there's not really any budget information about this movie, so it's hard to tell if it got the same treatment, like the 20 to 30 million that a lot of Ghibli films get. Yeah. My guess is it did not, because no. it looks, I think, awful in most cases. I think it, 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 it reminds me of like the the child programming that's on like Nick Jr. and like Netflix, the like brain dead kind of everybody moves very stiff that. and there's no texture mm -hmm. to anything. Everything just looks like computer polygons patched together. I mean, I think it's all plasticky. The best looking parts of this film are when there's less light. Like, to me, yeah. I mean, the best-looking scene to me is hilariously the opening where it's, like, the mom, I think, is well... That's the thing, too, is, Oh, like, yeah, the little chase scene thing. Yeah, the chase scene, the, like, the the, the magic she does is really, like, actually yeah. very Ghibli-esque, the, de the design well, of, like, the yeah. worms. And, and that, that scene almost looked like... I remember thinking when I was watching that scene, like, oh, did they animate this, like, on twos like kind of how they no, did with, uh, yeah, with, with into the spider verse no, where I, they kind of made it look like frame you know hand-drawn animation but i don't know if they actually did they might they have did. they might have in that scene i don't know but like the rest of the movie is definitely not that no yeah i mean that's the thing too is when there is actual shading and lighting that isn't just blown out yeah. there is some genuine craft to the design and in terms of the lighting it's but when it's daytime <laughs> and characters are outside they either look like Even I don't know. Inside. They either look like Barbie dolls, or they either look like if they're the kids. Did you ever have little people toys? Do you know what I'm talking <laughs> no. about? But there's like there's these, there's like these little like kind of chubby, kind of chibi looking no, characters. No, I've never heard of that. Uh, and they were I think they were just called the little people or something like that. And 
the one kid that's Earwig's best friend, Custard, oh, just yeah. looks like one of the main toys that's in that line. <laughs> the, ki- and the, the kids kind of reminded me of those uh, those claymation or stop mo- stop motion commercials by like Puffs tissues. Oh my! <laughs> that's what the children reminded me right. of. It was horrifying. I'm gonna look up the little people while you. Okay. Uh, well, and and and. I think one thing that also annoyed me about Earwig herself was that she kept making this face throughout the entire film. Every time she got scared or distressed or angry or just strained in, oh, like um, they're Fisher little tykes, Pri- they're, Fisher they're, Price. Oh, no, they're little called people. little people. They're Fisher Price toys. Fisher Price, okay. I'm glad I wasn't crazy. I knew I, they I exist. I remember those, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too, is like, I think with the animation itself, there are moments with the animation where it's like, it has a goofy, like, has a lot of, like, emotion or personality to it in certain moments where it's like, I think one of the moments that come to time is the, is the cat named Thomas? Thomas, voice, yeah. Thomas, voiced by Dan Stevens, who does the best with what yeah, he's given. Uh, there's a moment where they're lathering this cat up with this goo that Earwig and, him, and this yeah. cat have made because it's a talking cat because of course it is. And there's a moment where, like, Earwig is sliding on this cat and at one point she lets go and the cat does like a little bit of a ripple of like yeah. on its and it looks it's like really cat, good the, the skin on cat's back they'll like ball yeah. it up it's and, very cartoony yeah. in the right way yeah that and, that little moment was mm-hmm. cool and like there was moments where it's like oh my gosh this is like very almost chuck jonesy at times in mm. terms of like the over-the-top faces and whatnot but it doesn't do that all the time, and not only that, what also makes, I think, the animation stick out the most, especially with the English version, is the dub. Because the dub, yeah. not only is the dub kind of lackluster, it has a pretty, I hilariously enough, I think Casey Musgraves does the best job, <laughs> even though she goes <laughs> from kind of, she kind of British to not British yeah, when she's yeah. singing. But the fact is, is like, with 2D animation, you can kind of... You kind can of fudge it. You, you can, can fudge, fudge it the because dub. you're not getting because there's fewer frames. You know, you're not yeah. getting a perfect picture of how the character's mouth is moving. Mm-hmm. You're not getting enunciations. Yeah. You're getting pretty much pretty basic movement <laughs> in the mouth. When you move to 3D, you're doing pretty much a perfect yeah. simulation of a real human mouth. Very little. You see all the syllables yeah, and everything. Very little words in the dub fit with the mouth. Yeah. I mean, there's that one point where I think uh, Earwig is yelling out loud. And her mouth the entire time, her teeth are like clenched together. Yeah, and she, and she's supposed to she's be saying doing, like ah. And she's, or yeah, something. and then she's like going e and like yeah. her mouth, and it's like that does why? Yeah, it doesn't work. It's it, it I mean that has issues. Like, there are other films that have come out in the last couple of years that are foreign films, and they're probably really good, they're fun, good CG films. But like when you have an English dub, it just becomes more apparent that it's English. Yeah. It's not English because the dub isn't fitting with the mouths. Yeah, well, that's what we get for being filthy dubbers in this case. <sighs> well, in this case, To, to again, be honest, I don't, th- I think there are way more problems with this movie than the dub. No, yeah. The dub is yeah. a huge, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a bad dub, yeah. and I think it also just doesn't yeah. work with 3D that well, but I also hmm. don't think I would have been attached to these characters, Yeah, even if it was subbed. I, I don't... Mean, I mean, you have, like, a tight enough cast where you have Richard E. Grant as the Mandrake, who is the demon character, who I actually really liked his design. Uh, yeah, he, I there, liked there were his, some fun things done with him. He was kind of scary, and yeah, I liked that. He had he had a fun, like, almost kind of, in the kind of sense of Matilda, almost a roll doll vibe in terms of yeah. how he was built and how he got angry. Yeah, and, and uh, honestly, I think that those were the only moments in the movie where I really felt like I was having, like, kind of a, uh, like a, not subcon well, like a subconscious reaction when whenever he would get quote unquote disturbed, as he always said, and he'd start his eyes would light up with fire and his skin would get red. I actually kind of was like, Oh, that's uncomfortable. That's not fun. I don't want this to keep happening. I think it's every time his head would just face into a wall. That was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. And those, he's so those tall. Were the, the few moments throughout the movie where I was actually felt like I was having a natural reaction. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm kind of into that. There are spurts of personality, but not enough where I would say that the animation is personable. Yeah. It is, it is, and yes, it is a situation where it would be, I guess, a tad better if it was in its original language, but at the same time, it's not like a half star better. It still has the issues of the animation just 
is rough. Yeah. The story itself is very forget. The film is just overall bad yeah. and forgettable. But I think to me, it's a bit it's it's a bit more engaging than Tales, only because it's trying to do less and i think achieving that less a lot better than what tails is doing <laughs> sure because all because yeah. all earwig is doing is i want to be a witch and this witch won't let me be a witch so i'm just gonna be an asshole yeah well as tales from the earth sea is in the time of the earth sea there's the right, magic right. is like i don't care yeah and i mean to be honest i i would probably never rewatch either of these nope. movies and i wouldn't recommend them to anyone um, they've kind of, I would say they kind of fill the same space on a, on a star rating, you know, somewhere around one and a half or two out of five yeah, or something. I, I, I give them both a two out um, of five. I, I think for me, I, this is almost negligible, but probably I, I was less irritated or at least more content to sit there and let the movie wash over me with Earthsea just because it's kind of it's dealing with things that I'm arbitrarily more interested in, okay. you know, a, a no, high fantasy that. world, oh, yeah. uh, you know, a little bit of action and magic here and there. And yeah, I was just a little more, I felt a little more like, uh, Oh, with, with earwig, it felt like this is more for children. Yeah. Like just kind of basic stimulation for a <laughs> child to watch this and, and you know see what? colors go by. And... I got that basic stimulation a hundred percent. I liked the music in this. I think the music is genuinely the, good. I, I liked the earwig music, like the band music. Yeah, yeah, the band music is fun. I think the the, the ending credit song is cute. I didn't understand uh, why we needed a full length like um, opening credit sequence with a full song and everything just to watch a silhouette of earwig a, dance around. I think it's because if you took out both the opening and ending <laughs> credits, it's a little over sixty minutes. Oh, because okay. I'm pretty sure by the time the end credits happens in the film, it's at least got six to seven minutes left of runtime, uh, and that's yeah. all just yeah. And it's again, that's what also I think I just went into like you go into Tales from the Air scene. It's like this is supposed to be a Ghibli movie. It looks like a Ghibli movie. Yeah, it looks like a Ghibli movie, and it fails. Yeah, like, why a, is this not interesting? Yeah. It should be interesting. But then, then you go into Earwig, and at a certain point, you're like, oh, that's right. This is a Ghibli television special <laughs> yeah. that was less than 90 minutes. Maybe it was a two-hour block one night in Japan, and overall has enough stimulation, and it just is basic enough that I can sit there, watch it, and at least when there's fun, goofy moments at times, like... Like, honestly, yeah, I like the whole, like, when Mandrake is playing, not piano, what is that? Oh, the organ? Yeah, the organ, when he plays the organ. Like, I loved his whole room setup. Yeah. I liked I liked how, like, there's actually things that were set up in the film and actually paid off. <laughs> where it's like, oh, I don't think that's going to ever come back. And it's like, oh, it does. Mm-hmm. That's cool, I guess. Yeah. It, it, honestly, Earwig, to me, feels just a little bit more like a film, but that doesn't make it any less bad. <laughs> yeah. I think it's... I was also just put off by the ugliness of it. And I think I also... there's some interesting designs, mm-hmm. like you were saying, like with Mandrake and his room and stuff. But, man, in terms of the actual, like, render and the 3D mo- models, this might be the ugliest relatively high-profile animated film yeah. that I've seen in a I long honest, time. I honestly think it's a shame to a degree, but I also understand why it's being pushed for a theatrical release to a degree because I don't think this film is meant to be a theatrical release, yeah. but this is the first film that is 3D made by Ghibli. Yeah. So, of course, you're going to... that could be enough to get people to come into a theater to see it. I mean, to be honest, it's one of the yeah, reasons the, why... the kind of event yeah. of it. The I, mean, I mean, watching it, out, like, watching it out, I was like, you know what, I'm probably not going to really enjoy this, but hey, it's the first time they're doing this. There's a good chance that if they do this again, <laughs> it could be better. Right. And that's kind of where this film... This film just kind of feels like, a, let's try it out. You know, we're, 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 we're feeling how we're doing it. And also, Goro... Goro definitely, whether it's obvious that, like, he's missed two out of the three times, <laughs> I do think it's, I, I kind of can commend him and the people at Ghibli who were like, let's try to evolve, or at least try something different, and see if we can yeah, make that better. Out and... Yeah, it doesn't mean this movie's good. It no. isn't. But I'm glad they tried. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not Gold be opposed. star for effort. Yeah, I would certainly not be. This This movie didn't, like bar none turned me off from the concept of Ghibli doing 
3D no. animated movies in the future. No. Um, and I would be happy if they continued to try as long as, you know, it, the movie's good and it actually looks good. This one was just kind of a misfire. And I, I kind of think uh, in terms of the reception from people, mm-hmm. I, I've heard mostly very negative things from people. And Extremely I wonder, negative. I kind of wonder if this will kind of scare them off from doing anything like it for a yeah. while. I mean, if anything, worst case scenario is they stick to doing this style to a degree for maybe video games that want to do kind yeah. of or collaborations or TV shows because they're because the, that one right. TV show has fairly positive reviews. Yeah, well, and it's I think I mean Amazon has from, it. that that show benefits from being like cell shaded style, like how a lot of anime video games look. Yeah, um, I think it mm-hmm. honestly looks a lot better than this movie. <laughs> It looks. Yeah, and it I might mean, just be because of the style. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be the style, and you know what? Be, I mean, if, if the lesson that should be learned here today is, in all honesty, don't don't go full three D. You know, do the do the Into the Spider Verse. Do two D three D. Yeah, we kind of fake it. Yeah, you fake it. Do three D. Do three D, but design them as two D models. Yeah, and just and like animate them as such. And I feel like that. We'll get because, like, again, this film has moments I where mean, the animation's a little too choppy. Yeah, and I feel like you get you can get away from that, or at least kind of fudge it by having them look two D. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I mean, Gib- Ghibli is renowned as one of the greatest kind of homes of animation in yeah. film history. You know, yeah. I would love to see them be pioneers in some other way at this point. You know, in in a similar way that kind of Into the Spider Verse pioneered it. Basically a new visual style. Yeah. You know, I feel like they've got the artistic chops and the yeah. top of the line idea people there that they could mm-hmm. they could do something really, really vi- visually intriguing in a new way. For sure. But I think I, I think the reason they haven't done that is because most of the people who are higher up or at least working on those films don't really want to do that. Yeah. I mean, well, I, mean I, I doubt yeah. his father has oh, any interest. Yeah, he seems very much like kind of a traditionalist in Which terms I, of his animation. I think animation. he's literally just making a traditional Miyazaki film yeah. right now when he should be retired, but <laughs> it is what it is. Go to bed, old man. <laughs> how many times do we have to teach you, old man? <laughs> oh, gosh. It is, it is a wild trilogy. It is... We do not recommend Earthsea or yeah, Earwig. Just but, watch... Poppy Hill. Yeah, and and I would only say watch Earthsea and Earwig if you're trying to watch them all, and <laughs> you're just curious as to what a a, a quote unquote bad Ghibli film looks like, yeah. and it looks like these two films. But you know what? Yeah. I have no ill will towards Goro. He still made Poppy Hill. I think he's got good movies in him. Yeah. I'm curious to see what he does for the company. You know, in the future. Yeah, and. I'm I'm a little I'm a little honestly bummed to have there was no way around it because you can't talk about Poppy Hill without talking about the kind of central yeah. conflict of it. Yeah. But man, I really enjoyed watching that movie and not knowing what it was going to be about. You see, yeah, I honestly I was kind of there's a part of me that wish I didn't know that. Like yeah, I think yeah. I was just like I watched a video that just outright said it, and I was like, huh? Yeah. No. And then when I was watching it with you, I was like. This is the movie. Yeah. This is the one where I remember, like, this is the way I was, okay, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember when I saw you, I was like, yep, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, so, yes, that is the films of Goro Miyazaki and Andy. What are we doing next? Obviously, oh, it has man. to be something tied to anime, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We are continuing our journey through Japan. No, we're um, not. Don't say that. Don't <laughs> give them hope. It's not Japan. No, it's okay. It's not Japan. But it is similar stylistically. Next week, we've got a, we've got a, a big one because this weekend was a big HBO Max release. Wait, was it HBO Max? It's or next was... weekend. Oh, next yeah. weekend. Um uh, Mortal Kombat is hitting, uh, hitting streaming and the- it's getting a theat- theatrical release, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah, and so, it's getting IMAX. So in honor of that, we're we're going to be talking about all three live action Mortal Kombat films. First, we're right. going to be talking about the '90s films Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation, '95 and '97, um, I believe. Yeah, they're yes. they're kind of. Uh, 
they're, they're kind of, in a way, they're kind of cult classics. They've got a, a certain love around them in the same way oh. that kind of The Room does. Um, you haven't seen either, right? I have not seen either. You I'm see, just familiar with the culture. I just want to let you all know that one of the things that really wanted me to do this, not only because I'm excited for the new Mortal Kombat, but the thing is, is I have a nostalgic tie to the <laughs> first Mortal Kombat film, and I know... I know what kind of film it actually is, but Andy is going into this completely blind. And I've I, seen clips. I'm not a, not okay. totally a virgin. Well, you have you seen clips of the second one? No. And then that's going to be even better. Because <laughs> the first one is a cult classic. Hilariously, some people yeah. say, is Paul W.S. Anderson's best film. Right, right. The, the sequel, s- everybody pretty much seems to agree, it's is awful, right? A, it is a truly so bad it's good yeah, film. okay. And it's going to be a a true roller coaster episode with those two films. Yeah, and and to be honest, and then the week after we'll follow up with yeah. the new Mortal Kombat film, the one that's uh, coming or coming out next yeah. weekend. So today, the seventeenth, because we're obviously recording this live. You know, we got Goro Miyazaki for you, and then on the twenty fourth, we'll have. 95's Mortal Kombat and 97, maybe 98's Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah. And then, I believe it's May, May 1st, 1st yeah. we're going to talk about the newest Mortal Kombat film. Which, to be honest, I'm actually really excited for that. I'm genuinely it, pumped. The trailers have been great. Like, yeah. it actually looks like it could be really fun. Um, and also, I, I like that it, you know, it looks like it's up to par budget wise and it... I'm, I'm just gonna say i love you'll see this in the first Mortal Combat film but in the first Mortal Combat film they make kano who's the one with like the laser eye and the half yeah, yeah, metal yeah. face oh, yeah. he's he's not australian in the in the in the movie in the <laughs> they, games they invented in the games. that for the yeah movie. they made invented it for the movie and literally every iteration since. prior has made him fucking since, yeah has made him fucking australian and i love that even though the first film is very flawed. <laughs> yeah. It is hilarious how much of it has resonated for the franchise. Right. Which we'll, well definitely have to I talk mean, didn't, about. Didn't the first film kind of originate the, the modern, the current iteration of the theme? Oh, that is, that is, that theme came from the movie. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, there was no theme song for Mortal Kombat right. that was like that. <laughs> uh, and we get, and we're getting a new theme. We're getting, oh, yeah. yeah. You get little I'm, teases of it in the trailer. Oh, yeah. And they just released it a few days ago. Yeah. That's, mm, but yeah, tune in on the 24th when we do the first two Mortal Kombat films. But until then, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.